Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. We'll hear Sean Jacobs and William Shokey on why South Africa erupted into riots. And Max Krahe will present a case for economic planning to deal with climate change. In the middle of July, riots erupted in South Africa shortly after former President Jacob Zuma was jailed for refusing to testify in a vast and solid corruption case against him. Why? What happened to the African National Congress, the ANC, which ran an admirable campaign of liberation for decades during the apartheid era, but has governed less admirably over the last 27 years? For more, we're joined by Sean Jacobs and William Shokey. Sean Jacobs, a professor of international affairs at the New School, founded the website Africa is a Country about a decade ago. It's grown into an important forum for African writers to discuss politics and culture on that continent. Will Shokey is a staff writer for the site. Will Shoki mentions Umkanto Wesizwe. For those of you not up in your South African political history, that was the arm wing of the ANC. He identifies himself as a born free, which is the term for those born after the fall of apartheid, making them 27 or under. Both he and Sean Jacobs mentioned the Fees Must Fall movement. That was a series of protests in 2015 and 16 against university tuition increases proposed by the government. They were rescinded and funding for universities was increased. And the final before-the-fact glossary entry, Sean mentions the EFF. Those are the initials of the Economic Freedom Fighters, a nominally left-wing Pan-Africanist party founded in 2013. That's the third largest in Parliament after the ANC and the Democratic Alliance, a party largely for white liberals. Will Shokey and Sean Jacobs. A storm of riots in South Africa over the last few weeks, and uh, the former president reported to jail. What's going on in your country? So quite a lot is going on. You mentioned just now the riots which happened. So the background to that is that former South African President Jacob Zuma had been arrested by the police. The reason he was arrested is that the Constitutional Court, which is the highest court in South Africa, found him guilty of contempt. The reason he was found guilty of contempt is that he refused to appear at a state-sanctioned commission of inquiry into state capture State capture is a South African word used to describe endemic corruption, which had been plaguing the state and which had heightened, particularly during Jacob Zuma's presidency. Just to make it clear, these are not unfair charges, right? He's pretty No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, there's since about 2012, there's been explosive reports by tremendous parts of the South African media. There was an official investigation by our ombudsman known as the public protector and recommendation that came out of that is that they needed to be a nationwide commission of inquiry to try and figure out the extent of statewide corruption. Zuma was the one that actually inaugurated the commission of inquiry. His term as president ended when he was pressured to step down. That was like three years ago, right? Yeah, in 2018, uh, that's when it happened. And then a general election happened in 2019, and the incumbent president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was officially elected. And the Commission of Inquiry, which began in 2018, has, which was meant to last only 180 days, has lasted until now. And it was in proceedings of this inquiry that he refused to make an appearance. The commission obtained a court order compelling him to appear. He refused then. And in violation of that court order, the constitutional court found him uh, guilty of contempt. The corruption he's guilty of, is it just like routine political corruption, stealing money and throwing jobs to your friends and that sort of thing? That's pretty much it. But I think what, what made the way Zuma carried out his corruption something that was particularly outrageous was just how he handed power almost directly to a wealthy Indian family called the Gupta family. The allegations are that this family had direct access to him as the president, would influence his decisions over cabinet appointments, 
and would make those decisions based off of their business interests. Uh, th- this is the one scandal. The other one was uh, for unauthorized security upgrades to his homestead in Nkandla. The magnitude of the corruption and the way it was so flagrant is what makes uh, Zuma's presidency remarkable in that sense and what stoked a lot of outrage when he was sitting and what eventually led to rising public pressure for him to step down when he did. And so when he was arrested, I think it was both a, a somewhat jubilant moment, I think, for a lot of South Africans, definitely a lot of Scheidenfreude insofar as he was the main character of evil and the story of corruption in the ruling party that had uh, unfolded pretty much since the dawn of democracy, but obviously got intense during his time. And that's what precipitated. He has a large fan base despite all this corruption, right? He does. He does. And it's a large fan base, but also a coalition of, of shared interests insofar as the patronage network, which he installed as president is so extensive and particularly concentrated in KwaZulu-Natal, which is the province that he hails from and the province where a lot of the unrest was concentrated. Um, The ANC in that province is pretty much directly under the the patronage of Zuma. And, And so not only just a lot of fans, I think his fans base has waned in terms of people who, who support him as a leader in general terms. But I think there are a lot of people who have a lot to lose if uh, accountability mechanisms are properly put in place to hold people for corruption. Because the way the African National Congress in in KwaZulu-Natal, which is aligned with, with Zuma and his faction, is such that corruption and patronage is deeply embedded in, in how it operates Supporters, I think not so much anymore, but but fierce loyalists, yes. And they stand to lose a lot if he falls and that's where he's headed. What could you say about him as a political figure? Was this, did he play any role in the, uh, the liberation struggle? Uh, is this a disappointment, a devolution on his part? Or was it all a surprise that he ended up this way? Sean, maybe you you'd might want to jump in here because... I'm someone who's a, who's a so-called born free. So uh, my kind of recollection of, of Zuma in during the liberation struggle is, is sketchy at best, but he was prominent in the liberation struggle, particularly through Nkonto Wesizwe, not one of, the, let's say, the key figures who partook in the negotiation of the post-apartheid settlement, but definitely a high-ranking official but I think if you read a lot of the biographies of some of his comrades, I think one person who's particularly scathing in their recollection of, of Zuma's is Ronnie Casarals, former Communist Party and ANC government minister. And they'd always spoken of him as being untrustworthy and interested in his own accumulation of power. Certainly looking back at it now, he seemed something of a of a dark horse. And I think that at the time, a lot of people couldn't really explain his appeal beyond the fact that he was this leader who styled himself as a populist who spoke of escalating redistribution in South Africa to the extent that the official left in South Africa at the time, uh, notably the, the Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions, actually backed his presidency at the fateful uh, ANC elective Congress, uh, where he ousted Thabo Mbeki as ANC president. It's hard to view his turn as a betrayal, just because it's hard to pinpoint exactly what he stood for throughout his political career, and whether or not this proved to be a departure from that. I think he always presented himself in, in a vague enough way that you could never really say what he advocated for. And when he rose to power, he he styled himself as a populist. Sean, do you want to add anything to that? The rise of Zuma, I think, within the ANC after apartheid coincides with two things. One is there was a shift in the ANC from a mass-based popular movement to a party that relied more on certain key constituencies. So the power of the rural provinces of South Africa has nine provinces. 
and five of them have, you know, it's, it's more rural, like uh, with KwaZulu-Natal, where he's from, is one of them, where there's a reliance on traditional forms of rule, and where as a, even liberation movements like the ANT, you have to accommodate traditionalist, very conservative elements. And Zuma he styled himself as somebody who could mediate between this kind of modern ANC, if you want, and sort of Zulu nationalists or people who got their political authority from these, these kind of colonial structures. So in the process, I think he brought a lot of those people into the ANC. And what we'll describe is like patronage networks. He cemented that kind of politics. So if you look at like uh, his coalition when he was fighting his last stand before he went to jail, he did it with a lot of those, a lot of people who come from that kind of political position. Yeah, there were people in there from Contuasis where and from other parts of the ANC, but these were all people who had either been expelled by the ANC or in trouble um, about corruption within the ANC. I think that he was like the pivot for their for their politics. And I think the other thing with Zuma is that this is a the transformation in which the ANC becomes the place in which you accumulate capital. Suddenly, it's very lucrative to be a local councillor, to be a member of the provincial parliament or the national parliament, because that's the way to what they call in South Africa tenders. That's like you know the like government contracts. Um, and I think under Zuma, that kind of politics became cemented. I just want to say one other quick thing. Um, you talked about like, where does Zuma come from? And, and we'll, we'll, I think, correctly sort of point some of the kind of key moments in his life that sort of defined him. I think what people forget about Zuma is that Zuma went to jail, I think, when he was a teenager. And he went to Robben Island. He had been involved in ANC, the ANC in KwaZulu-Natal. He had very little education when he got to the island where he got educated because the island, there was an, there was an obsession and a tradition about educating political cadres. He came out of jail and became involved in underground work in the, the 1980s. But then he quickly sort of pivoted into exile. Even though he has a history inside KwaZulu-Natal, for most people, they think of him as a member of like the exile part of the ANC. So I think he took th- that kind of like Stalinist way of making political decisions top down. Um, and as I said, this kind of compromises with constituencies with, within South Africa's body politic that progressives wouldn't feel comfortable around. He managed to figure out how to maintain, build build power, build alliances, whether it was the Zulu king who was an alternate ally of apartheid or Butelezi, who was like the leader of the homeland of KwaZulu-Natal, Zuma somehow managed to incorporate Zulu nationalism as a kind of ethnic politics into the ANC. After Mandela's release and just before 94 elections, what people forget was the transition in South Africa was very violent with the state having a proxy army using the Inkata, which is the Zulu Nationalist Party, to fight the ANC. And Zuma broke it like peace between those groups at the time. And, 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 I, and, I, and I think he should get credit for winning many of those people over to the ANC, as I point out. But it had other consequences for the ANC about the nature of the ANC. The last part of it is, to Wall's point, he was presenting himself, or the people around him presented him as an alternative to Tabo and Becky. But people now forget as or urbane and like well-spoken as Tabo and Becky was, he was also associated with like two particular things, extreme neoliberalism and black capitalist politics. And Zuma was seen as the counterpoint to that. Now, whether Zuma stood for that himself, the moment that brought him back into sort of political prominence and, and opened his way to the presidency of the ANC and the presidency of the country was done on the back of a lot of unhappiness within the country. That period was characterized by a lot of protests, a lot of disruption. So he kind of took advantage of that moment. Um, and as it turned out, you know, and Will documented that very well, it just turned out that it was quite corrupt. That's the voice of Sean Jacobs, founder and editor of Africa is the Country. We're hearing from him and Will Shoki, a staff writer for the website. South Africa is now, I believe, according to the World Bank stats, the most unequal country in the world. Unemployment is rampant. COVID is wreaking havoc. Does that have anything to do with the riots? What about the general political mood? Uh, the ANC must have lost an awful lot of prestige throughout uh, the last uh, decade or two. The ANC has lost prestige, I think, in certain corridors. So certainly in South Africa's elite discourse sphere and in its middle classes, uh, the ANC has lost a lot of credibility because it's associated with 
corruption and patronage, but the ANC still is quite hegemonic. It still has massive appeal, uh, particularly among South Africa's older generations, particularly in, in rural South Africa, uh, because it's it's still known as the party of liberation. And that makes for, for deep attachments to the ANC and ones which have proved to be sustainable even 27 years after democracy. That, and, and I think one, one important thing about South Africa is that when, when one thinks about the, the manifold social crises that it faces, some of which you've cited with regards to the public health response to coronavirus, the widespread inequality and joblessness, and the ways in which corruption undercuts the capacity of the states such that it can't deliver basic services to scores of South Africans. One thing that is is interesting about South Africa is that even when there's opposition to the states or protest against the states, the significant form that protest takes still is through expressions within the ANC. So service delivery protests, for example, will be organized by local branches of the ANC, and that itself also becomes a site for power plays and certain factions to to outdo others. They'll protest against the state, but still have allegiance to, to the ANC. The unrest, for example, is the is a big illustration of that about how the ANC's influence in South Africa is still so deep seated that the majority of social conflicts still manifest as conflicts within and through the ANC, um, even when they are against the state. It's hard to say um, where things will go from this. I think what this has done in the wake of this unrest is kind of, I, I suppose, suggest that the ANC's internal contradictions are just becoming much too irreconcilable, that it's possible that it will wane much more significantly now, especially considering that the younger generation of South Africa, especially since FISMA's fall, has become more politically active, noisy and lively, and will probably have a much more dominant effect in upcoming electoral contests. But For now, the ANC is still in a healthy position, even if it's weakening. What this unrest might precipitate is that weakening to happen much quicker. Two other things that, that, just to add to what Wally is saying, is one, I think, is what the unrest showed was how weak the, well, the ANC will still win elections. But as to whether the ANC is the party that commands, like at some point people gave the ANC the right, if you want, to imagine a different kind of future for South Africans to, to take South Africans somewhere else. I don't think that's the case anymore. Kusatu, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, the Communist Party, they haven't had the intellectually or as a, as, a, as, a, as a group within society that kind of helped determine the direction of where South Africa was going. I think that they're weak. That emerged out of this thing. And I think a number of other groups have now emerged as, as being as having some kind of power in determining, you know, shaping the debate and so on. So, for example, and I'll just mention two quick ones. One is, like, if you, if you look at, like, who was the group that eventually became important in not stopping the violence, but slowing it down or trying to safeguard malls and depots, where one of the groups were the taxi drivers, which is a group in South Africa that doesn't pay tax, but believes in black capitalism. Another was more conservative, Middle class, almost sort of ethnic politics. So groups like you know, one sort of name that I kind of heard was something called the Crossa Men's Association. These were just like people hanging around showing off their cars. But then they kind of gave their allegiance to Ramaphosa and saying, you know, we believe in the new uh, kind of social order. And then I think beyond that, they may have lost like uh, their credibility among the middle classes are down. But I think they are still the party for the middle classes. When the middle classes think of who can govern South Africa to keep order and keep the, you know, the demands or the desires of poor South Africans for South Africa to like work for them finally to keep that in check, it's going to be the ANC. What I think the ANC has lost control of the 
of how the, how the middle class thinks about you know black empowerment or affirmative action and so on, particularly the black middle class. I think at the same time, both the black and white middle classes understand that it's the ANC that's going to police black people. Because if you look after the, the looting, the main groups that the police focused on were like really poor people, you know, going into their into their makeshift houses and confiscating like the little bit of food or you know some toy that they looted for their child. And the the government, which in a way is synonymous with the ANC, goes after them. So I think that 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 role of the ANC will persist. And one other quick point: one of the reason why, to Will's point, that the ANC still is sitting pretty is because opposition parties in South Africa. To be blunt, they are just terrible. Nobody has stepped into the breach of this kind of of this uncertainty or the space that the ANC is leaving. That the ANC is not delivering. It's not transforming South Africa. And so you have one. Just mentioned two of them. The official political parties, the Democratic Alliance, um, has been unable to to transform itself from just a party of, if you want, white interests and uh, what they call in South Africa the minorities, which is to sort of play off. Different, different parts of the black community against one another. And I think the second one is the EFF. And the EFF presents itself in a sort of, as a kind of, you know, Chavistas, the way they dress, their sloganeering. Um, but it, it, it is very clear that they, they're very fast. They're so almost fascist and they're obsessed with the leader. And if you looked at the, the, the process with the looting, it caught them by surprise also. And it was very clear that they were they were they didn't know what to do with the looting. So in a way, the ANC, to back up what Willie's saying, the ANC sits pretty, but as as to its ability to shape like the future of South Africa, in that way I think it's very weak. Does the white capitalist class have much power in South Africa anymore? It does, but I think not so much as as being uh rooted in a white South African interest. White capital in South Africa is just international capital. When you think of white capital as influential during during apartheid, you think of it as being these these groups that organize around specific national interests, uh, such as Afrikanerdom, the famous grouping here being the the Bruderbond, which was this elite collection of Afrikaans capitalists, um, particularly in big industries like mining and and manufacturing. That sort of thing doesn't exist so much anymore. I mean, there are some, for example, capitalists who uh, are prominent in in an enclave of South Africa called Stellenbosch, and they run these financial giants. There's this big corruption scandal over a, a company called Steinhoff and three out of the five top wealthiest South Africans are, are Afrikaans and they're based in this place called Stellenbosch um, and they're still fabulously wealthy and very influential in South Africa's business sector but uh, as far as it being connected to some national interest um, I don't think that's the case anymore certainly the way capitalism is structured in South Africa is one where global capital plays a predominant role and often global capital interfaces with uh, domestic capitalist interests. I think something that Sean was mentioning earlier about, for example, the economic freedom fighters and why they've kind of emerged to be a very uh, ineffective opposition um, is that they've they've sort of gravitated towards what I think a lot of uh, elite politicians in South Africa who are in the orbit of of Zuma and factions loyal to him. What they're interested in doing is is presenting South Africa's social cleavage as being this antagonism between black capital and white capital, but really what white capital means is international capital and what they're advocating for is a kind of economic nationalism. But it's very hard to see the conditions don't really provide for that, just given how integrated South Africa is into the global capitalist system. So I guess my estimation is is not really, but uh, I'm I'm interested to hear what, what Sean thinks. That's Will Shoki, a staff writer with Africa is a Country. We're hearing from him and Sean Jacobs, the founder and editor of the site. Sean continues. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think that you, you're right about international capital is way more 
significant to to for the ANC, like how they react. I know that in the last couple of days within the government, it's diplomatic missions, they were worried about like, you know, how they are perceived outside. Because white South African capital, I suppose, acts like all other South African capital. They just they in it to make money. So they're not a patriotic bourgeoisie. There's no patriotic bourgeoisie. There's no national project, in other words. There's no national project of capitalism. They do silly things like, you know, uh, they all go sleep like for like a two for a weekend intense to, to like get a feeling of what it feels like to be poor. But then they go, but then they eat lambs and they go back to their. Well, that's like Nancy Pelosi wearing the kente cloth. <laughs> yeah, some, something like that. That's the that's the symbolic level that I, at which I think. I think that's one one of the sort of the grievances maybe of uh, which I think if they did that the EFF would if the EFF was a little bit more sophisticated as it was in their politics would react different differently to it if the if white capital acted like a patriotic bourgeoisie the the, the issue with, with it's not not necessarily white capital but people in South Africa call it white supremacy I think it just has to do with the outsized influence or perceived influence that people think that whites still have within South Africa, within the public discourse about the direction of the country. And then I think at a sort of real level, it is about the way in which inequality reproduces itself racially. I don't think that has anything, maybe that hasn't much to do with white capital anymore. That for me has more to do with how the ANC has governed South Africa. The ANC has now been in power for 27 years. And I I always say this with the proviso that they, or, or the footnote, They've only experimenting with non-racial forms of governance or, you know, caring for the whole population for 27 years after 300 odd years of forms of violence and exclusions against black people. So I, I take that. But th- there is a way in which white whites or white capital, white, what do they call it? White monopoly capital acts as a kind of a foil yeah. or a, a kind of scapegoat for the ANC's failure to more aggressively trying to like transform South Africa because the ANC didn't do that. And it's kind of like with ZANU by 2000, when there is a referendum, I know people are going to hate me with the South Africa's Zimbabwe comparisons, but I think this one makes sense with ZANU by 2000, 20 or so years after, after um, independence, 1989, 2000, uh, Mugabe loses a referendum and he effectively loses the election. And that's when he kind of suddenly discovers that the land question must be addressed. So there's a way in which I think white people, because things hadn't changed fundamentally, and white people often also, not all white, but, in, but you know, it's it's the way things work in South Africa. It's highly unequal. It's quite racist often. And I was just there and you could see it and feel it. It's a convenient scapegoat for the failures of the ANC, that the people can see the society hasn't changed and you could focus on white monopoly capital or white supremacy. And people forget the state is, it's a black government. The state has been, it's controlled by a black government. And it's also controlled, by the way, not by a a government that is outwardly uh, in its rhetoric neoliberal, but it's a government that says that it's left-wing, that it is progressive. And when that government fails, I think it it sort of makes the shorthand of saying it's white monopoly capital or white capital. So it sounds like the ANC, uh, despite its uh, failings, has managed to incorporate large portions of South African society, a black capitalist class that had a large hand in creating, but also a middle class and uh, working class and poor. I mean, they they seem to have pretty firm grip on politics. Is that wrong? No, no, definitely. I mean, I'll jump in quickly. Well, I've always argued that the way to understand fees must fall, for example, which I think is the most exciting political development after the AIDS movement in South Africa, when Will was talking earlier about kind of the people making, ma- having made demands politically on the ANC and, and the way they made those demands was that they, they didn't ask for the overthrow of the ANC. They just wanted the ANC to do its job better. One of the things that people forget about Fismas Fall is Fismas Fall is essentially the beneficiaries of the ANC's policies. If you want the ANC as a, as a government, as a state, put policies in place to open up the universities whether they were through scholarship schemes and just kind of putting pressure on universities to transform like the, the leadership of these universities, creating frameworks about how we think about what is the role of public, of higher, of higher education in South Africa, that, high, that higher education has to be public. So in a way, 
you would have thought that the ANC could have been smart about this and use that kind of capital that it had, the social capital that it had with these different constituencies to transform the society. But instead, as we as we now know, right, it spent more time either preventing that kind of change or fighting with those populations. I mean, the AIDS thing is like a case in point. In 1999, when the, the, the AIDS movement sued the pharmaceutical industry, which they thought the government was going to be on their side to make these drugs either freely available or make them available at cost, you know, so they can be manufactured as generic. And then they find that the ANC government is also an obstacle against them. So this has unfortunately been like the record of the ANC as a government. It had all this goodwill from all these different constituencies. And I'm not just saying it in terms of sort of rainbowism and Mandela, but more like it was a, a movement that it just, it was self-styled national liberation movement. It said it had a program for how to transform the society. I'm sort of you know, high school in the 80s, university in the, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And for me, the ANC is that movement that opened up the society so I can get opportunity. So I believed also in their vision. But I think they did squander that vision over time. What Sean is explaining is, is important. It goes back to his earlier point that the ANC still has all of this popularity, but it's lost its ability to lead society. Part of its inability to lead arises precisely from the fact that it's always been this incorporationist movement with all of these different tendencies. And so never really had any real coherence in terms of what its developmental program was going to be or its nation building project was going to be. It's reflected as early as the negotiations for the democratic settlements. There are some people who are pushing for South Africa to move on a neo-Keynesian development path. Others who are pushing our integration into the global capitalist system and free markets and all of these competing tendencies that with, with none ever really settling as the leading one, all of these different contradictions have built up over time. They've kind of crystallized into more or less solid charts with the radical economic transformation idea of, of Zuma and the EFF and so on, and others who want to return to a more Mbeki-styled kind of governance where you promote a, a black bourgeoisie through through the private sector. And this is this is what's undoing the ANC. The problem is that in spite of that being the case, as Sean was saying earlier, there's no other social force in South Africa that can credibly say the ANC has completely failed to sustain its national liberation narrative. It's struggling to articulate a program for change in South Africa, uh, and we will be the ones to counter it. No social force yet exists that is capable of, of doing that in a way that is that is believed by the people. And so the ANC ends up defaulting as the group charged with that responsibility uh, simply by dint of the fact that it's the only one that has done that. And it's the only, despite it being completely untrustworthy and its reputation being damaged, uh, similar to what Sean was saying earlier. Unfortunately, it's the only one that actually has the record of initiating those changes, despite the fact that we think they happen much too slowly. Those are Will Shoki and Sean Jacobs, respectively a staff writer and the founder editor of the website Africa is a Country. Sean is also professor of international relations at the New School. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. No time today for a mid-course musical break, so it's on to the second segment. Financiers are showing increasing interest in climate change. Money managers are applying environmental criteria to investments and are showing increasing, though hardly universal, reluctance to fund the carbon business. How much promise is there in these sorts of approaches? Are traditional market mechanisms up to the task? Here's a voice from a sector rarely heard in behind the news. Max Krahe, a political economist at the University of Duisburg in Essen, Germany, wrote a report for the Belgian Sovereign Wealth Fund on the need for more top-down planning to deal with the climate crisis. The Financial Times ran a column by Krahe based on that report with the provocative title, For Sustainable Finance to Work, We Will Need Central Planning. That sharpens Krahe's argument some, but I thought it was interesting to hear someone in that world hint at such an argument. Here's Max Krahe. This is certainly um, a moment uh, to have a conversation like this, given uh, 
the fires in the northwest of the U.S., the floods in Germany. Yeah. I'm curious first, though, um, what role a sovereign wealth fund would have in um, sustainable investment? Sovereign wealth funds invest mostly in financial instruments. Sustainable investments have to be done by physical investment, done mostly by corporations. Um, and there's, you know, it's not a direct line between investments and financial instruments and what happens in the physical world. So how do you see the, the role of the, uh, the sovereign wealth fund in moving towards some kind of sustainability? That's an excellent question. Um, let's say that I had one position at the beginning of my research on this, and I've moved to a slightly different position at the end of my research, or at least the, the stage where I'm at right now. So initially, I thought, you know, sovereign wealth funds are these large pools of investable capital that with sufficient political will could be shifted around and could potentially drive fairly major changes in in real economies. But the more I looked into it, I realized that a the degrees of freedom are lower than I anticipated the the political constraints, the financial constraints on the kind of returns they need to produce, they, they, they quite often bind. And then secondly, the, let's say, risk return profile of the kinds of investments that might really make a difference. It's just not obvious that it's the kind of risk return profile that sovereign wealth funds would be interested in. You know, a lot of this kind of stuff is is really risky from where we stand today because it's all about shifting these, these major ecosystems, you know, the kind of energy system as a whole, the transport system as a whole, the agricultural system as a whole, that sort of stuff. And you just don't know when you start pushing one of those systems systematically, whether the resulting investment is going to be profitable or not. It just depends on so many other things happening in the economy that it's just deeply uncertain. And so it's probably the kind of thing you want to take fully onto the public balance sheet and so have it just the national treasury cover it um, instead of having it run on the the balance sheet of a returns-oriented sovereign wealth fund. Well, and also uh, certain sectors have to be put out of business. So the carbon sector has to be snuffed, right? So that's Absolutely. not the kind of thing you'd want to run in your stock portfolio. You don't want to see a certain large sector go to zero, but I mean, that's yeah, socially yeah. necessary, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is such a no brainer and has been said so many times that I just took it for granted. You know, divestment is is just an obvious necessity and, and any sort of money that's publicly accountable. I think there's, there's no justification in the year of our law 2021 to be invested in anything that's that's seriously carbon intense. So really, I, yeah, I think that goes without saying. How is a sustainable investment practice now? When uh, large pools of money, institutional investors talk about sustainable investment, you know, you've got Larry Fink at BlackRock talking about this sort of thing now. What kind of criteria do they use now? What are the filters they apply? How do they think about it? The dominant mechanic or set of filters that's used, they they tend to run under the, the label ESG. So it's a set of environmental, social, and governance criteria. And and. Um, different ratings agencies will use different catalogs of criteria, but they usually have something to do with carbon footprint in the environmental uh, category, depending on how how ambitious it is. The social one tends to be a fairly diverse basket of, of different indicators that, that they look at, quite often to do with, with gender or other forms of diversity. And the governance one has the, the kind of typical good governance criteria, um, who sits on the board, what's the relationship between the chairman of the board and the CEO, what's the relationship between kind of various shareholders, what sort of information is public, that sort of stuff. Depending on what precisely you put into your ESG criteria, you can squeeze pretty much any company into conformity with those criteria, and you can label, label nearly anything as, as ESG compliant. So if you look into take a major ESG fund, you know, something that's put together by, by BlackRock or, or someone equivalent, if you then look into what's actually which, which stocks and bonds are actually in the portfolio, usually it's just a portfolio that's the stock market index minus the oil majors. Um, and sometimes Shell sneaks in because they, they talk about the future a lot. Um, but usually you'll just have really major positions in, in Apple, Microsoft, um, large industrials, that sort of stuff. In the FTPs uh, that you wrote, which is based on a report you did for the Belgian Sovereign Wealth Fund, you uh, bring up and dismiss several conventional ways of uh, approaching these topics. Project by project analysis, for example. Investments in Belgium's strong chemical sectors, that's sustainable. Uh, yeah, just talk about that, that kind of criteria, what's, what the limitations are. 
This is essentially the approach that we just talked about a minute ago, right? Where you look at uh, a particular project, a particular company, and and you then apply a kind of set of criteria that you really develop them in isolation and you, you apply them to, to this one project in isolation. The problem when you do that is that whether or not this new chemical plant meets your criteria is really kind of irrelevant. I'll give a slightly different example and because I'm sitting in Germany right now and, and Tesla is building this, this uh, new gigafactory in its own lingo just south of Berlin. And it's obviously investing a lot of engineering time and concrete and, and, and lots of other resources into this new factory. It might be that this turns out to be a sustainable investment in the sense that it reduces the overall carbon footprint of the German transport system over the long run. Could be. Depends on what happens in the energy sector, depends on what happens in, in kind of transport infrastructure, depends on lots of other things. But it could also be an enormous waste of time that could be used for other things, of energy that could be used for other things. For example, if the German state makes major investments in public transport and, and decides that every family owning a couple of, of cars or something like that is just no longer feasible with, within the planetary boundaries. If that happens and we, we simply phase out individual car transport, then this whole gigafactory will be an enormous waste and therefore will not be sustainable. And there's just no way that you can, you can make that judgment if you just look at this one factory in isolation from what happens uh, elsewhere in the economy, elsewhere in terms of policy. Okay, then there's the, the, uh, the neoclassical economist uh, favorite mantra, getting the prices right. So if we priced carbon correctly, things would more or less take care of themselves or the market would take care of things. How sufficient is that? It's a step forward because it takes seriously the idea that an economy is really a net, an integrated system where what happens in one corner affects everything else. So, so kind of the price mechanism communicates these sorts of changes. So that's, that's a step forward from this really naive project by project analysis. But it's really a question of fit between a mechanism or an instrument. The price mechanism, really, it's, it's, it's a social technology. It's an instrument that we have decided as a society to use in order to coordinate our division of labor. So the question is, what's the fit between this instrument, between the social technology and the, the task that we need to achieve? Right? We need to decarbonize. We also need to move a few other variables inside of the planetary boundaries. You know, We can't be using soils in the way that we've been using them. We can't be killing off biodiversity in the way that we've been doing it. So we need to change a bunch of these things. So the question is, what's the fit between the instrument and, and the challenge? And here, I'm just not convinced that the price mechanism and the market mechanism is the right fit for what we need to do. What we need to do is a pretty rapid, pretty systemic transformation. And this is something where, where prices run a little bit haywire. So the classic example about why the price mechanism is so great comes from, from Hayek. And he says, look, if you've got, uh, you're doing something with tin, the raw material, let's say tin gets more expensive, then everyone who uses tin as an input is going to say, mm. Maybe we can change our production method to save a little bit on tin. And then if everyone does it a little bit, you have a new equilibrium. Great. This relies on the idea that prices change gradually so that when firms make new investment decisions, you know, they, they buy a new machine or build a new factory or, or enter some sort of long-term relationship with new supplies. When they make these decisions, the price changes are gradual enough that you can adapt your investment decisions in time. But let's say the price changes are really rapid and maybe even unpredictable and you don't know what sort of price changes are going to happen in, in a year, in 18 months. Suddenly, as an investor, you really have no idea what sort of investments you should be making. So in a context of high uncertainty, the price mechanism no longer guides investment. What then guides investment, of course, we have all these financial markets that try to price the future. But what then guides the, the price formation in these financial markets and, and kind of has an influence on, on real investment decisions is suddenly its expectations. And there is there's ample, ample, ample research that expectations can move really quite independent of what goes on in the real economy. So if we say we want to coordinate the transition towards sustainability through the price mechanism, really what we're saying is we are betting on the expectations of some unnamed set of investors, and we hope that their expectations and the investment decisions that depend on that are going to get us to sustainability in the next 10 to 15 years. And I think that's just a vastly irresponsible gamble that we should not be taking if we have any sort of alternative available. I'm speaking with the political economist Max Cry. 
This all reminds me of very much of Keynes, uh, this world of where, you know, he just radical uncertainty. We just simply do not know, as he said in that uh, essay in the general theory. This is not something quantifiable in the conventional sense. This is like a real radical break, and we just don't know where we're going. Is that, that the issue that the market pricing mechanism just can't handle a, a break of that sort? Precisely that, precisely that. You know, I think the market mechanism is fantastic to to, to kind of deal with with small gradual shifts. It's it's good at kind of picking up on new fashions. You know, by all means, lead the production of I don't know shoes and lipstick and and cutlery and you know all these smaller things. Coordinate them through the market. Fantastic. It it works in that way. No need to change that. But coordinating system level change under serious time pressure, I've never seen this work well through the market. Think of two or three examples of really rapid turning an oil tanker around in the economic domain and and how's this been done. So look at the American transition from a peacetime economy to a wartime economy in the late 30s, early 40s. This happens essentially through through various forms of, there's experimentation, but it's done through coordination through resuscitating the, the various instruments developed at the end of World War One works extremely well, but it doesn't do it doesn't it doesn't work through the, the, the price mechanism. And then compare the transition out of their respective command economies between the, the Soviet Union and China. You know, the Soviet Union, under the influence and pressure of, of Western economists, tries to go for for kind of market coordinated transition, big bang price reform, get the prices right, and then then let private investment follow. And it's a mess. You know, life expectancy falls, GDP per capita falls, all sorts of supply chains disintegrate. It's a complete mess. The Chinese decide to have a much more guided transition. And there's there's a fantastic book that came out on this re- on, on, on this recently um, by, by Isabella Weber. And I think you maybe had her on the podcast. Yes, I did. I, I interviewed her several weeks ago. Uh, great stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so there you see it. And another way this reminds me of Keynes is, you know, at the end of the general theory, he talks in very vague terms, but evocative ones, about the somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment. Some of what you're talking about uh, reminded me of that, that we need some kind of planning body to lay out from the top down rather than the bottom up some kind of uh, path towards um, serious sustainability. Um, what might that look like? What are you thinking about? The first thing to say is I think we should learn from history and kind of draw on the various examples of uh, especially indicative planning that have worked well. So the, the the French government in the in the wake of World War II adopted a system of indicative plans that played a role in in the the French miracle, the, the famous Trente Glorieuse. And there's another case which I'm not as familiar with. The Japanese post-war miracle also had to do with various indicative plans, where I believe it's the Ministry of Miti, international trade and industry. Yeah, it's funny. It was, it was such a big deal in the eighties, and now it's forgotten. The idea is that um, through sketching out plans for for particular sectors, um, you can help coordinate both private and public investment to move along these paths. Now, I, I will also say, you know, an economy is a very, very complicated thing. So, so planning will always go wrong. The expectations that a, a set of planners would would outline for five years, for 10 years, these expectations will never be fulfilled. And that's that's something that, you know, any sort of serious attempt at planning today would would have to take into consideration. So you would have to think about how precisely would you iterate these plans? And then uh, the other big thing is in, in, in my thought on all of this, the planning is above all a system of information. And so you would have to think about what sort of decision-making mechanisms do you hang on that information and and that i think is a separate discussion i i'm not a huge fan of, of you know a command economy where all the decision making is also taking place at the central level that i think is a very very different conversation from this idea of producing a, a kind of a set of plans that people can then coordinate around and yeah so so i would separate information and decision making and and kind of say that both need their own analysis. What would the scope of this look like? I mean, we need to think about, uh, have some long-term sense of where the transport sector should go, where energy generation should go, where your building should go, agriculture should go. I mean, you're thinking of very high-level sectoral um, strategies. Is that the, the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the key question is, how do you reduce complexity in such a way that we can have human conversations about it? For climate change, the five sectors that you just mentioned they, they simply account for the vast majority of emissions. 
certainly in energy and transport, somewhat less in industry, somewhat less in agriculture, maybe in housing, we, we deal with a finite number of technologies. You can deliberate about choices between wind power and solar power and, and kind of battery storage of electricity versus you know, physical storage in, in large dams or that sort of stuff. Those are conversations you can have. If you try to move planning one level down and you, you try to make decisions about where to locate particular production facilities, suddenly the, the level of complexity just becomes so high that planning loses kind of meaningful content. Now, this would require an expansion of state activity uh, into areas uh, and practices that have been very unfashionable for the last 40 years. How do you think about the politics of it? It's, it's a challenge. Certainly. And certainly, although I think that the, in a way, the politics, there's not that much I can say about it. All thinking people today recognize the need for, for a sustainability transition. Thankfully, a group of activists are pushing for it. In Germany and Europe, the, the Fridays for Future movement has really been kind of an excellent spur to get uh, political decision makers, but also, you know, financial decision makers to take the issue more seriously. And honestly, you know, just, we just need to look around ourselves, whether it's wildfires or floods. I think the um, consequences of not doing something will become apparent, hopefully, in a way that, that will generate the, the political pressure um, that will then move things along. It's, it's a question of timelines. It's not guaranteed that we will have a kind of sufficient level of pain early enough to spur decisive action early enough. But the politics are the politics. And, and as an economist, as a, as a political theorist, I wouldn't say that I have special insights into the day-to-day -day politics. Maybe one last thought on this. Um, business opposition to this is much lower than it's often portrayed as. I think it's, it's a very small number of companies whose existence depends on running an unsustainable economy. The vast majority of, of companies, the vast majority of certainly of workers would be very happy to transition. And so it's a question of how do you coordinate the transition and how do you manage it? And it's less, uh, less about do we transition or do we not transition? That was Max Krahe, a political economist at the University of Duisburg in Essen, Germany, and author of a report for the Belgian Sovereign Wealth Fund on the need for more top-down planning to deal with the climate crisis. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Suburbia by Adrenaline OD from 1983. Till next week, bye.